Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Lucy Nicholl, who is a writer and a PR consultant. Her work has appeared in The Independent, The Eye Paper, The NME, Red Magazine, Den of Geek, Huff Post, and many more. She is also a former columnist with Sarah Milliken's Standard Issue magazine and often interviews guests for the Standard Issue podcast. And Lucy has also written a novel, the 27 Club. She's passionate about challenging mental health and particularly addiction stigma, has worked with the media and PR and marketing for over 18 years, and has experienced anxiety for even longer. Lucy, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thanks for having me. It was interesting, you know, we were corresponding beforehand, and, you know, I mentioned there just in the intro that, about the novel that you had written, and I loved the premise of it, of that, for anybody who's into to music, there seem to be so many great musicians over the years 27 seems to be quite a, a kind of tragic year in terms of, of musicians was that was that the starting point that you that kind of triggered something in you that you wanted to write about yeah I think so. I think where it originally came from was I'd, I'd written a non-fiction book about mental health stigma and I really enjoyed the writing process and I thought oh I really really want to write something else but I just don't feel that I've experienced enough so I thought well best thing to do then is make it up so I'll have a crack at fiction and and then I can do you know whatever I want to do in this book. Mental health stigma is something I'm really really passionate about and I've done a lot of work in the past with Time to Change of Mind and I work with lots and lots of mental health charities and I don't know if it was my age I don't know if it's some kind of midlife crisis or something but turning 40 a few years ago I started really kind of getting mildly obsessed with the 90s and all the music that I listened to as a kid and I love nostalgia and I love music and it just kind of you know I was thinking well what can the hook be what can really bring this story of mental health to life I thought back to the day that I heard that Kurt Cobain had taken his life and I thought well there's all that interesting narrative around the 27 Club and people, well, rock stars dying when they're 27 and more recently, of course, tragically, Amy Winehouse as well at that age. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting concept. And also thinking back, I felt a little bit like the wheels were coming off a little bit when I was sort of 25, 26. I'd been away traveling, come back home. I was out of work for a little bit and started maybe drinking too much and stuff for my you know for what suited me and my panic attacks returned and I noticed that when I turned 27 was actually when I met and fell in love with my now husband and and life started to calm down a bit so I think there is something about you know around that age where it's a bit of a pivotal point for us but I think in the main I was really interested in the fact that the media can create so many kind of 
ideas that we all sort of follow. And somebody coined this 27 Club at some point way back when. And I kind of wanted to challenge it a little bit and look beyond the headlines because working in media, you know, is something else I'm quite interested in as well. Because I must admit, when I, when I was just reading about the book, and I think automatically you start to think back to when you're 27 and trying to remember, you know, what was happening in your life at that point. In terms of, you know, you're talking about mental health and perhaps the stigma of mental health is obviously very important to you. Have you seen that change? Have you seen the way people's attitudes to change? Is, that, is it something that, on the one hand, maybe is changing slowly, but frustratingly slow because there's maybe still a stigma to it or there's still the way some people find it difficult to deal with or talk about? Is that still something that's ongoing, I guess? Yeah, I think that, I think there's been huge change. I mean, when I look back to when I was a kid, you know, and I probably stigmatised mental illness because I didn't really understand at the time um, and there weren't as many conversations about it and I was experiencing it myself. I have an anxiety disorder and I was experiencing these quite full-on panic attacks, but I didn't really understand that it was a mental illness. And I think that things have changed hugely, but sadly, Time to Change lost its funding and, and closed its doors this year. And I think they were just getting started, really. I think there's so much more that could be done. One area that I'm really, really passionate about and that I do a lot of work in, I work with addiction recovery charities and I think there's a long, long way to go until we, you know, we talk about putting mental health on a par with physical health. And then I think within that, there are certain illnesses that are not on a par and not as acceptable uh, or palatable as other mental health problems. So, you know, we know that any illness where psychosis features, there's still a huge amount of stigma around it. It's, it's often sensationalized in the press. And yet it's something that makes people incredibly vulnerable. And I think it's the same with addiction. You know, addiction very much is the result of a, a mental health problem in most, well, in, in many, many cases anyway. I don't know any exact figures, but in many cases. And I think that the person who ends up self-medicating with drugs or alcohol or gambling or whatever it might be is often vilified. And I just feel that that isn't, a subject that really needs to be explored and I think that's why I found the 27 Club so interesting as well because we can easily wrap this excuse of rock and roll lifestyle around the people who who have sadly died at 27 Janis Joplin, Brian Jones, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse you know it's really easy to say oh they're, they're rock stars that's what they do but there's so much more to it. And you often wonder if actually the mental health problem came first. It almost could have been a factor in leading them to, to need to express themselves through music. I don't know. But being within that environment surely only makes the person more vulnerable to the illness. So I think there's been huge, huge changes, but I think there's still a lot to do. And I think that we don't view all mental health problems equally at all. Because it always strikes me, and kind of what just what you said there is that I think the starting point would be is if everybody looked at it, is that everybody does have mental health in the same mm. way as people have physical health. Now, sometimes people's physical health is good, sometimes it's it's not so good, and people have different things that they struggle with in terms of their physical health, and it's just the exact same. So you have mental health, you might not have mental health problems or issues, but you still have mental health. That should be the starting yeah. point. Absolutely. Um, 
I think the campaigner Natasha Devon is one who is always, always, always reinforcing that point. I think it's really important because people will often say, you know, and somebody who has experienced a mental health problem will often say, I have mental health. It's like, well, we all do. Everybody does. And I think it's just such a, I think mental health problems as well are so complex and you know, there's this kind of idea of this scale that, you know, depression, because it's more common, is less of an issue than, say, schizophrenia. But in actual fact, everybody is so different. And we know there are many lives lost through both illnesses. So I think there's a scale within the diagnoses as well, in terms of, you know, the help people have managed to get, the support networks around them, and whether they're able to manage their illness into recovery. And so I think that all of it is, well, none of it is black and white, I think is, is the main point. And um, yeah, I think we just need to remember that, remember that it's really nuanced and that everybody's experience is totally different. I've been really lucky to work on some amazing projects whilst I was working with Mind and also I'm working with a great charity called Action on Postpartum Psychosis. And we do a lot of work with popular media, so a lot of soaps so and, and TV dramas, whose script teams work with us to ensure accurate portrayals. So it's not just people who work in mental health that are doing this work. I think it's just so brilliant that people who are creating fiction or drama are able to and are really really keen to make sure they get it right they see there's a responsibility there they understand the power of their program because at the end of the day love them or hate them millions and millions of people watch the soaps and so there's great power there and the fact that the script teams are working so hard with the likes of mine the Samaritans Action on Postpartum Psychosis just done we did some work with Road to Recovery Trust and Coronation Street around addiction. I just think it's it's just brilliant. It's it's something that more and more people are starting to sort of take ownership of. And I think that's a really good step forward. I was also going to ask you just in terms of the, the experience of writing the novel, how you found it. Because I've noticed on Twitter, you're obviously you're busy working in something else just now. I don't know if that's another novel. And, and so therefore, maybe the experience was actually... It wasn't too unenjoyable in terms of writing the, the first novel. Is that, is that another work of fiction that you're working on? It is, yeah. Now, the first, so the 27 Club, because I'd never written fiction before, I was a bit daunted by it. I was kind of like, is fiction something I can do? I kind of stuck close to home. So while the characters are entirely fictional, the lead character, her personality is completely different to mine, but I've had her experience an anxiety disorder and obsessional thinking, which is something that I can relate to. I didn't actually get obsessed over the 27 Club, but all sorts of strange obsessions relating to health anxiety. I remember watching the film Stigmata and getting really concerned about getting the stigmata and checking my hands and feet. And it sounds totally crazy. But then, you know, a lead character getting that obsessed about the 27 Club, you might think, well, that's totally crazy. But it's amazing how many people relate to that. Quite a few people have said. So I stuck, I, you know, I talked about the music that I love, the time that I love. I set it in Hull, my hometown. So there's some elements of 
my personal experiences there. For the next one, I'm, I'm actually writing a sequel to it at the minute. It's actually going a lot darker in many respects. And I'm moving away a little bit from my personal experiences and working with, much like the script team do on the soaps, I suppose, I'm, I'm working with others who have experienced certain things in life to portray and, and dive into a different sort of mental health problem. I mean, I can probably say I'm, I'm looking at addiction more closely for the next one. And I'm really keen to, to do that in a way that doesn't sensationalise or glamorise, but is just kind of, you know, the awful dark reality of it. And to answer your question, I think in terms of writing, I find it quite cathartic. If I'm writing about anxiety, for example, and panic attacks, I do find it quite cathartic because I'm not in it at the minute. I'm managing my anxiety disorder. I haven't had a, a, a full-on panic attack for a couple of years or so now. I think if I was experiencing a, a, a relapse or lapse of my anxiety, I don't think I'd be able to write at all. <laughs> so when I am writing, it's, yeah, it's quite, quite cathartic, I think, because I'm able to be reflective rather than thinking about what is happening right now to me. So it separates it a little bit. I mean, and I think in the, the course of the podcast, we'll, we'll no doubt talk more about that and about, about the work that you do. And what I want to do and what I always like to do is take you back uh, on, a mu- on a literary, a musical, a literary journey of your life. And the first thing I always do is take people back to their childhood and ask you to choose your favourite book from childhood. And the book that you had mentioned is called The Enchanted Book of Tales. It's not one I'm familiar with and I take it just a, a book of children's tales and, and why why is it that that stuck with you yeah so I had a couple of books when I was a kid a couple of like big hardback books big book of fairy tales I think and then this one called the enchanted book of tales and it was a, a whole mix of kind of different stories I think the reason it stuck with me is because they were quite, some of them were quite scary. I mean, fairy tales, when you think about them, are actually quite frightening. <laughs> They're really quite disturbing, a lot of them. But the Enchanted Book of Tales, there was, a, there was a story that really stuck with me in it about this young boy and a young girl who set off through the forest to stay with their grandma. And they think they've reached their grandma's house, but they've actually reached a, a, a witch's house. And and um, it's all quite frightening. And I think that there was something, I mean, there still is, there's something in me where I feel compelled to watch horror movies or read quite disturbing things. And then I really regret it afterwards. And I think that's been with me ever since I was a kid. And I, I just remember reading that particular story. I mean, there was probably like 30 stories or something in the book. But I remember reading that one over and over and over and over again when I was a kid. And it, it, it still unnerved me every time. But I think also the reason that book stuck with me was because they weren't, they didn't seem to be really well-known tales. They seemed to be slightly left field. I mean, there were, there were a couple in there, like um, uh, Rumpelstiltskin was in there. So, you know, there were a few in there. But yeah, I just, I don't know, I felt like that, the Enchanted Book of Tales and its illustrations had a little bit of an edge about it. And maybe that's why I was drawn to it when I was a kid. Yeah, I've spoken to other people about, you know, certainly maybe, I'm not sure now in terms of 
kids' books and the fairy tales, but certainly maybe in years gone by, there was, as you said, a wee edge to them that they were, you know, maybe that was part of the appeal for children is there was a slight sense of being scared and a wee bit unsettled, even if you couldn't quite verbalise that when you were a kid, that you knew there was something just a wee bit edgy about these stories that you're reading. I think so. I mean, you know, we all found it exciting, scaring ourselves, telling ghost stories and things like that, didn't we? I think anything that made us scared or that made us... We also hated icky things, didn't we, as kids? The most, the more gross, the, the better when you were kids. So, yeah, I think, yeah, it's probably maybe kids just enjoy extremes. I don't, I don't know. But, yeah, there was, there was definitely something a bit edgy about that, that book. It's just funny. I, and I, again, I don't, I don't remember. I would have read fairy tales at the time. I am a bit of a big, uh, I'm scared. I don't watch horror films. I don't like to be scared at all. I, I don't, and I don't know where that goes back to, to childhood. I just, I don't, I wouldn't really read violent, scary books, but I certainly horror films or, you know, even kind of like the more psychological ones where the, the whole point is to try and terrorise the audience. I get no enjoyment out of them at all. Even, even the, the kind of the horrible thrill that you, you, you later say, well, that was great. I, I just don't experience that at all. I do. <laughs> and then I really regret it. And and they stay with me for days and weeks. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think I'm probably it must be part of my personality. I like to terrify myself, but it really does terrify me. <laughs> I do get really frightened and uh start obsessing over the things that I've watched and whether or not it could happen. And it definitely affects me for some time after when I've read or, or watched horror. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't read as a genre. I wouldn't read horror books. I've I've read occasional books that absolutely chilled me. So uh, there's a there's a classic Scottish novel from about the 19th century, the, the Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, and it's all it's to do with you know this good and evil, uh, one man's descent almost into to, is it madness in terms of his own mental health. It's it's quite chilling. And then the other book more recently is Mystic River, which obviously became a film. I, I couldn't read that book again, I don't think, because the, the first section of it just, to the end of it, I, I, was, I felt horrible after it. It's just yeah. it's so brilliantly written and you're so in it, but I, it's not an experience I would go through again. I think, I mean, even when I think about the, so even beyond like horror and psychological thriller, actually, you know, when I think about what I choose to watch on TV, I spent all this weekend watching This Is England again. I've actually watched the whole lot again since about Thursday onwards, the film and all of the series. And I watch it and I feel so uncomfortable watching some of it. And I'm, I'm crying at some of it. And some of it, I'm just like, I can't, just makes me shudder. It's so dark um, and traumatising. But I don't know, there's just, I just find, I'm just drawn to watching those kinds of dark, gritty dramas and I think anything with Stephen Graham and it's just superb anyway <laughs> yeah there's one part of this is England I can't remember what series it was I I found it too upset and I had to leave the room and I don't think I could ever watch the series again it just the attacking one of the characters it was just too it, it just disturbed me too much I found it so upsetting that I just I just couldn't bring myself to to even engage with the rest of the series because it just had that effect on me I mean it was as a kind of testament to the acting and the writing, etc. But as a viewer, I was uh, thought I'd, I just can't watch that. It's interesting, it, it, kind of when you think about it, because it, you're watching. 
I think I probably know what scene you taught. Well, there were two similar scenes actually that took place in the same room that I really, really struggled with. Part of me feels like compelled to watch because you kind of think, well, do you know what? Some people go through this. Some people experience this and it's hard to imagine what it must be like. And, and of course, watching This Is England or something from the safety of your living room, you're not going to know what it's like. But I think, like you say, because the acting, the direction, the writing is so, so good. It is so powerful. And I think, you know, it really starts to sort of take you into the the impact as well, the psychological impact on some of these awful traumatic experiences that people go through. And I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe that I just almost feel a bit of a responsibility to try to understand that. But then you've got that whole thing as well, haven't you, about I'm watching it for entertainment. And that that's a tricky one to get your head around. <laughs> so I think at the end of the day, though, you know, with people like Shane Meadows bringing some of these issues to the fore, it's just, it's brilliant. It needs to be done. It needs to be done. Now, in terms of the podcast, if I can take you on from your childhood choice and then (coughs) ask you to choose your favourite book from kind of teenage formative years, the one that you've gone for is The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. So The Outsiders, it was, was a book that I and I've, I've still got my original copy of it. <laughs> it's very yellowing. But it was a book that I bought myself when I was young because I, I read about it and I was really, really interested in it. And I, I was gripped by it. And then I think, if I remember rightly, that a couple of years later, we actually studied it in English at school as well. And I think the reason I'm interested in it is because it's kind of got that sort of tribes element to it. I mean, gangs, tribes, different things, but there's something about identity and and finding out who who your friends are and what you believe in, how those things come about and how they manifest. So in The Outsiders, you have the greasers and the socias. I mean, you know, when I was younger, I I loved Greece. I can't tell you how many times I watched it. Another one that's not aged very well at all. But the greasers and the socias, what's interesting in the outsiders is it's not, it's not about purely kind of, you know, what fashion you enjoy, or what music you listen to, which was very much my experience growing up. You know, if you felt kind of a little bit on the outskirts of something socially, you could almost just choose a kind of music and a kind of fashion and that became your identity and you became part of something. But in The Outsiders, there's definitely a sort of a a monetary, a a sort of a class divide. So the greasers are, in fact, it says, I think it says on the the back of it. Well, yeah, so a greaser says, no, a soch says, you know what a greaser is, Bob asked, white trash with long hair. And uh, the greaser says, um, you know what a soch is, white trash with mustangs. And I think it kind of just shows that there's more to it that kind of creates these different tribes and very much a a financial divide there but I just found it really interesting and how the lines blur a little bit when people come together I think there's a girl I I think she might have been called Cherry maybe there's a girl who was one of the socias who I think I think the main character Ponyboy falls in love with I could be wrong 
but I think it's interesting that it kind of goes back to, you know, who we are as human beings, regardless of our identity and, you know, who we want to fall in love with or who we want to be friends with, that there's something underlying that sort of identity that, you know, our values that creates those relationships or helps us to bond. So, yeah, I just I just found that a, a really interesting book. I read it a, a few times. And the film, of course, had all of the teenage heartthrobs in, so... <laughs> Because it's interesting, that's a book that a number of guests have chosen in that category. And part of the reason I wonder that if it does is because S.E. Hinton, Susan Hinton, she, I think she was only 15 when she started writing it, and she was only 18 yeah. when she published. Her experience, you know, she's writing it to an audience, but she is that audience almost. Yes, that is interesting. You can almost relate that to uh, somebody. People will probably hate me for, for this comparison, but I do love Catelyn Moran. And I always found it interesting that Catelyn Moran started writing really, really, really young. But I do think that it's, it's interesting when those voices do break through at that, that younger age because they are more authentic. I mean, it's something I would really struggle to do is try to write something with a, a teenage protagonist because... I don't know if my memory's good enough to really bring out the, the essence of, of what it was like to be that age. Because I also think those, those sort of books are absolutely crucial because you know that a lot of times, again, like a lot of guests are voracious readers as, as children. Once you learn to read, you just devour books. But then like a lot of people, you know, once you become a teenager, there's so many other distractions. And so sometimes you can get waylaid in terms of your reading. So it's books like that that kind of either re-engage teenagers or remind you again why you love books and why you love reading I think so it's probably around that time as well that I was reading a lot of things by like Judy Bloom and I don't know if I never know if I say her name correctly Paula Danziger Danziger maybe and I was also reading I read some really quite dark non-fiction when I was that age as well I remember a book called Dangerous Candy which was about one woman's experience of heroin addiction it was just a slim book like The Outsiders, so it felt like an easy read. It almost felt like it was a, a teenage read. I'm not sure if it was intended that way or not, but um, I was very much drawn to it. So I think we learn a lot, don't we? I think with The Outsiders, with like Dangerous Candy, as an example, and with Judy Bloom, I think we learn a lot, and we learn a lot in terms of perspective from it through these situations that we can relate to now I'm you know I've I've not been in some of the dangerous situations that some of the outsiders have but I think when I say relate to I think in terms of those tribes or those gangs or you know understanding the differences between us with Judy Bloom very much about growing up forever was was the one that all the girls read when they were in last year of junior school and told the boys they were too immature to understand <laughs> which was about somebody losing their virginity and so I think it's that being able to relate but also to learn and sort of see different perspectives of the things that you were probably on your way to start seeing and experiencing yourself. Because often people say that you know for example readers are maybe more empathetic because you've maybe as you, you touched on there you maybe not experienced the actual what's going on in the book but you you can either understand it or in, in this case even if you're not you hadn't been running about in a gang you'll know as a teenager the feelings that, that a teenager would have you know whether it's in terms of that tribal mentality whether it's just like the type of music that you like and other people don't or suddenly being aware of a, a physical attraction to someone else that wasn't there when you were younger 
those things, those feelings, that's what you relate to within the book, even if the actual specific circumstances change from person to person. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that when you go back to, you know, the tribes, if you like, I think that they're a way to, you know, so for me personally, when I was younger, I felt really ugly and um, I had crooked teeth and spots and I just, I just felt really ugly. And then when I found like Nirvana and senseless things and whole, and I felt that I almost could detract from that by, you know, wearing darker makeup and clothes that were a bit kind of out there because it took the focus off some of my natural looks, I suppose, which at the time I had no self-esteem. I was totally shy. You always wonder with people like Janice Joplin if there was something in that as well, because you kind of notice as she got more and more famous and, and she must have been getting more and more unwell, obviously, because, you know, we, we know she sadly passed away too young but she had all the feather boas in her hair and everything. And you do sort of wonder if there is something about having that tribe, that kind of scene, that look that can take the pressure off you as a person because you're part of something else. And you yeah. can see the first thing you see is that you're, that you or that that person is a part of something as opposed to like just looking directly at the individual, which for a teenager is quite a relief. Yeah, actually interesting because you know that way people would probably think the other way that actually what you want to do is encourage individuality. As you say, maybe as teenagers, where probably a lot of people have a lot of insecurities because they are changing physically as well as emotionally, that, you know, that the comfort of being part of something. As you, and as you say, when somebody looks at you, they don't see necessarily you, they see you as a, as a group. And for you, that allows you that comfort to be within that, which is an interesting yeah. way that People may not, not think like that, but actually there's probably a lot positive in that. Yeah, I mean, definitely for me, that is definitely my experience. I think everyone's different and I'm, I'm sure there are lots of people out there who, where it is a more of an individual kind of path that they take. But, you know, for me, it was my first boyfriend was into this music. Then all of my friends that came from having that first boyfriend were into this type of music and you know, although there were slight differences within that in terms of the kind of music, there was something that that we all understood, I suppose, as part of a group. And yeah, it did. It, I found that quite comforting. It was almost like, well, I don't have to try to be the pretty outgoing girl in school that, you know, I see all the, the cool lot being because <laughs> um, I'm part of this now. And it doesn't matter. It's so far removed from that that nobody's going to think I'm trying to be that because this is so completely different. So, yeah, it's interesting thinking back. And the other thing I, I really like about your choice is just the fact that you still have that original copy. And, and I love that because, you know, although people love the story and the words within it, I think sometimes the actual just having the physical copy of the book, because I'm guessing I've got books that actually when I hold them in my hand, I remember being 15, 16, reading them again. I'm guessing the same thing applies in that case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so kind of battered now um, when you look at it. It was £2.50 to buy this um, whenever it was that I bought it. But yeah, I, I did. I've got a few. There's a few books that I've kept, not many. And there's actually a few books that I've bought secondhand. The Book of Enchanted Tales, I managed to track down and, and buy that again. 
um, because even though it's not my original copy, having the same edition that I had when I was younger and seeing those same pictures is, yeah, it really, it really does take me back. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest today is Lucy Nicol. Lucy, we're on to your third book choice, which is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is a book called Last One at the Party by Bethany Clift. Yes. So the reason I always talk about this is because it is so far removed from anything else that I've ever read. I think if I really, really understood what it was about, I might never have picked it up. And I'm so glad I did. It's a a bit of a post-apocalyptic story. It's got a pandemic in it. When I first heard about it, I actually thought it was going to be about addiction. I thought the pandemic of addiction, maybe. And it isn't. But it's fascinating. It's I. I just found it fascinating. I was really lucky to be sent a proof copy from the publisher. And it's basically a story where the protagonist, who I don't think we ever know her name, actually, it's set in 2023. And there's been a pandemic that's wiped everybody out, pretty much. I think she started writing it way before COVID. um, So she certainly wasn't like jumping on the bandwagon. I don't know how she felt when oh god my book about pandemic is coming out within a pandemic within a real pandemic it's very different it's basically something that kind of wiped everybody out and the story's not so much about this killer virus it's about kind of who you are and how you live when all of the things that we've sort of taken for granted around us is gone and and you just totally strip back to you so in in this case Everyone she's known and loved has gone. Everyone. There are still kind of, you know, there's like Harrods. She goes and because she can walk into any shop that she likes, obviously, because nobody's alive. And she can, you know, she can go and drink champagne and eat stuff from Harrods Food Hall or whatever. But the really interesting bit, I think, comes when she learns to live with very little and just, I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail. But I just I just found that really interesting. And it's it really stayed with me to think, you know, what would it be like? What what would I feel like if all of a sudden I was out somewhere rural alone starting a life? What would it be like? Would it be wonderful and beautiful? Would I panic? Would I feel claustrophobic in such a huge space with nobody else around me, if that makes sense? I just found it fascinating. So I think it really is a story of how we live and what we take for granted around us and you know the best bits of that the bits we would miss from that and the bits that we've become accustomed to the the sort of the convenience of modern life and what happens when that all gets taken away it's really interesting so I definitely recommend what fascinated me and it's it's something I've, I've been curious about over the last 18 months or so you know with this coronavirus pandemic is how either how writers are going to tackle it or as readers is it something that we want to read about having just experienced it ourselves so I was quite interested to read about that and as you said I think she had started writing it prior to COVID although I think I'd read an interview where she did she's had to get back in and she's just made reference to COVID through it just because I think it's set maybe two years on from now yeah she did I think but 
I definitely remember reading that she wrote it before. And like I say, you kind of think I wouldn't pick it up. And also, it's not my style. I think she writes a lot of like horror and stuff. And it's it's just, I'd think, no, that's not the sort of book I'd want to read. But it is, it's about people. It's about humanity. It's about, it's, it's so fascinating. She's got one hell of an imagination. <laughs> but you know, there's two things that struck me when you were just talking about the book. Is one is, it always concerns me that, you know, a writer writing three years ago can look and see the way the world's going and seeing the, the potential catastrophic dangers of a pandemic and what that happens. And so the people who you expect or hope are also doing that, i.e. the politicians, etc., patently hadn't been doing that given the kind of chaos that we've had in the last 18 months. Uh, the other thing, just from the way you're talking about the book, again, it's just what strikes me is, and maybe this book tells it perfectly, is actually if you strip everything away, actually what we miss most, and I think for a lot of people have maybe had to then work from home rather than the office, is actually human contact and human interaction. That Everything else is all supplementary, and you, you can take away all the, the luxuries or the, the physical side of things. Actually, it's other human beings that you would miss the most. Yeah, and I think that is what's really coming out in this book, that yes, we miss those social interactions and relationships. So that's a big loss, huge loss. But then we reconnect with the planet in a different way. We reconnect with the place we live, the world we live in, in terms of physically the world we live in, when you take away all the convenience. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, maybe Bethany Cliff should be... Uh, in the country. <laughs> yeah, she'd definitely do a better job. <laughs> Well, to be honest, that wouldn't be hard. It's not exactly a high benchmark. Because, you know, just that point you just made right there is one of the things that I've been aware of in the last 18 months is that, and I think everybody's the same, is that you always say everything that's on your doorstep, you know, whether it's just in your immediate vicinity or even, for example, in your own country, a lot of times you're, you're not aware of it. It's almost like tourists come in and they can shine a light on it. And I think in the last 18 months, I've suddenly become aware of things that are within sometimes within about 10 minutes walk in my house that I'm thinking, why did I not know this before? And because your world contracts to an extent, suddenly you're aware of, it's almost like a contradiction. It contracts in terms of where you can go, but actually expands in terms of what you see. Definitely. We found a gorgeous woodland walk that is literally on the doorstep. So every, every time we go out for a walk, we go to the bottom of our street, turn left and walk into Wheatsway Country Park, which is lovely. But we, it was only during the... We've lived here six years. It was only at the start of the pandemic. We turned right and we're like, wow, this is gorgeous. And then during the pandemic, we were walking there in the sunshine. We were walking there when it was totally white with snow. Yeah, I think you're right. It does. It, it's smaller in some respects. It's smaller in terms of the social aspects, but it can be much bigger in terms of the physical world around us, I think. Apart from when we had the travel ban and, the <laughs> and all of that. Absolutely. But yeah, what's on your doorstep, you do open your eyes to it a bit more. The other thing in terms of this question, and people either approach it differently, but some people maybe struggle with it more because it's always that, you know, that idea of being pinned down to recommend a book to, to anyone. Is that something that you, is it something you do a lot? Or was this quite an easy one for you even just to choose this particular book? So I think the reason I chose this book, two reasons. First of all, because it's not one that I would normally pick up and one that I just raced through and loved and I found really provoked me and, and I was thinking about for a long time after. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because I'm 43, my stepson's 22. And when he came back home for a bit, I gave him 
copy of the book and said, do you want to give this a go? He read it in 24 hours and absolutely adored it. So it just makes me think that it really can reach, it just reaches humanity, no matter how old you are or what you've been through. I think it just strips everything back and, and, and makes you think about life. So yeah, they're the two reasons why. Now we go from one extreme to the other, from the book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that I couldn't pay you to read again. And the book that you've chosen is a book called The Exorcist by William Blatty. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So this is because I'm drawn to horror and it terrifies me. <laughs> I remember thinking I wanted to read The Exorcist when I was, I think I was 18, 19. And uh, I was living in Hull. I went to Hull Library, Hull Central Library to get it. And even that as an experience, because I asked for it, they went into some blooming bolt or something to bring it out. It was like the whole thing around it. It wasn't just on the shelves. They went away and they got it and they brought it back. And it was this heavy red book. And I was just a bit like, oh, I was a bit freaked out before I even started reading it. And The Exorcist being such a famous film, but obviously, you know, a lot of people do chuckle at the film because of the, they see, you know, a lot of green sick and head spinning around and stuff as being a step too far. And, and, you know, it could prompt half the crowd to giggle at it rather than be frightened of it. But with a book, it's different. And I remember reading it and it wasn't even the probably more scary moments that frightened me. There was a bit in the book that said, I'll never forget it, described her, the character, who's obviously possessed by some demon. And it just described her as sitting there and looking. And I think it said the words, her head undulating like a, is it a cobra that does that? Those words, I don't know why it wasn't even a scary bit, but I slammed the book shut and put it down and had to take a breather. So yeah, for me... There's no way I would ever pick that book up again. I was glad I borrowed it from the library so I wasn't left stuck with it in the house. I'd probably think it was possessed or something. But, but yeah, that's just another example of me being drawn into horror and then freaking out about it. Because <laughs> it sounds like the library, if it was uh, the book was hidden away, that they're probably taking a note or putting a red mark against your name as somebody who's written to be watched. I know, it's just, it's just that opening experience of me reading The Exorcist, some lady walking off and down some stairs in a library to get me. I just thought, yeah, that's really setting it up for a disturbing read. Because I've never read the book and I've never even watched the film either. I mean, I'm aware of the film, but even at the time when it was, you know, when people are watching it, I, as I say, I just shy away from those kind of things. So, yeah, nothing could, could make me either read or watch it. I, even if it's, as you say, dated now in terms of, the special effects, etc. Yeah, just don't. <laughs> I certainly won't be watching or reading again. I mean, it's, in terms, again, it's always fascinates me when I'm, I'm talking to people about their reading habits. And quite often this is a difficult question, partly because, depending on how you read, so, for example, if I read a book and I'm not enjoying it, I don't finish it. I just go on to read something else. So it's hard for a book like that to have, to leave a lasting negative impression. But do you do that or do you start a book? Do you kind of feel like, right, I need to finish it? Mostly. I th so I think with The Exorcist, it wasn't that because it didn't bore me. It, it gripped yeah, me, but it frightened me. There are a couple of books that I've not read to the end. And I, I don't like to say what they are just purely because it's personal choice. And I wouldn't want to 
you know, suggest that other people might not enjoy them because everybody has different tastes. But yeah, that there's been a couple where I just sort of really, really do not relate to these characters. I, I can't feel anything. And so it's actually become quite a chore to read it. So I do mostly try to finish. But yeah, there's a couple if, if I'm just not relating to it in any way, shape or form then. Everybody's going to be intrigued now. You're going to get people listening to this and messaging you later saying, what are those books? Tell me, tell me. No, I absolutely wouldn't. I wouldn't do that because it's not that they were badly written. It's not that, you know, loads and loads of other people didn't enjoy them. They just weren't my cup of tea. One of the things you just mentioned there, which when we were talking earlier on about your own writing and your own novels, are you conscious of the fact that I think sometimes you see, you know, when people are talking about things that are portrayed on TV or in films, but it also works for books as well. If people can either see themselves or, you know, maybe see some of the problems that are articulated in it, it's a way of helping people as well. That You know, that idea, particularly about mental health, one of the things that it must be good for people to know is that they're not alone and that this is maybe a struggle or an issue that other people have or are dealing with. And, and maybe, you know, there's even reading a character in your book, for one reader that might help and that might make all the difference. I hope so. I think this is the, the thing with fiction, especially because you, you're entertaining at the same time. I mean, a lot of nonfiction is there's so many humorous nonfiction books that I'm thoroughly entertained by and learning at the same time. But certainly with fiction, because you can go wherever the hell you want to go with it. As a writer, what drove me to write was initially challenging mental health stigma and the fact that I enjoy writing. And I think that's that's still very much the same. And it, it's like with Times Change, Times Change always said they were about the three and four rather than the one in four because they needed to reach the three and four. So they always said one in four people will experience a mental health problem at some point in their lives. So the stigma often comes from the individuals who haven't experienced that. So they're writing for the three and four. So I think that with fiction, if you can entertain as well as inform you can reach the one in four and the three in four so you can reach the one in four in terms of you're not alone here's you know characters experiences that you can relate to and you can reach the three and four by building up if you can build a really strong character then and a likable character that you can show is experiencing some um, really challenging difficult sometimes ugly mental health problems then hopefully the reader will see the individual and be rooting for the individual because they can see that the problems and experiences they're going through are not of their making they come from a psychological or a psychiatric kind of source so I think that you know and I think that's why the soaps are so great as well because you've got such long-running characters you know Carla Connor for example who I worked on in Coronation Street the psychosis storyline Carla Connor has been in the soap for years and years and years. People see Carla Connor, then she experiences psychosis. So they still see Carla Connor because they've watched her for years on screen. If you just introduce a character with psychosis, with active psychosis, you're going to just see the illness because you don't know or care about the character. So I think that character building is so important in fiction and, and mental health stigma. I'm guessing then that, just that work that you've, you've mentioned before about, you know, working with the soaps, that helps you in terms of your, your own fiction writing. Because as you, as you mentioned already, 
you may have things that you want to say, but you still have to entertain and engage your readers because it's particularly in a work of fiction. That's maybe why people are, are reading the book, but you're still wanting to get something across at the same time. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, working with the soaps was always very much a negotiation process. So, you know, otherwise we'd be like, right, you can't use you can't use this word or that word or, you know, don't call the character mad because she's experiencing depression or psychosis. But in real life, that happens. So, you know, I think it's about how, I think it's about context and how we do these things. So there, w- there was a scene in EastEnders once, I seem to remember, two characters who didn't like each other. I think they'd both, you know, had a relationship with the same EastEnders character or something. There's some history. One of them has bipolar disorder the other used it as a sort of a weapon to chuck at her basically and and said she was crazy absolute crazy unfit mother but you can see that you can see that that isn't what we should all be thinking the viewer is not sympathetic to that character because that character is being portrayed in a jealous light it's that context so I think that we should portray stigma because stigma has an impact on society. It's about how we do it in the context that we do it in. If you have a really lovely, lovable, popular character who shames somebody for a mental health problem, either that has to be addressed or they have to be, you know, they have to be pulled up on it or they have to be remorseful about that, or it's sending a really strong negative message out there. So it's just how it's done. Writing about addictions really tested my writing skills because a lot of what the character is experiencing she has a a very obscure view of it because she's experiencing it and you know obviously using psychoactive drugs or substances she's not seeing things as everybody else so I've explored very very clearly you know what's driven her to those behaviours but when those behaviours happen, I've kind of taken away her inner monologue completely and just done it through dialogue or had somebody else help her reflect on it and sort of tell her what has happened. Because otherwise, you know, there are ways of doing it, though. You can have the unreliable narrator, can't you, as well? So so there's that way. I've just chosen to do it in this other way. and Hopefully it will work. We'll see. <laughs> and in terms of when you're in a writing process, do you... Are you trying to work through to get to the end of a first draft and then get back through and take it from there? Or do you write something and then go back and revisit it and then move on? So I seem to write about the first three chapters like that, where I just kept going back and back and back and back and back. Then I decided to just have a writing marathon (laughs) or a sprint, if you would like, for a long time, where I was just spewing words out and I got so far and I got probably four-fifths of the way through the the synopsis through the story and I didn't finish it and then I've gone back to the beginning again (laughs) and then I've I've you know had discussions with people with lived experience who have been able to kind of say oh well actually I think if she were in that situation if it were me I would have felt this this I might have not done that so then I'm going off you know down other other paths halfway through so it's a bit of both I don't have a I don't think I've got a structured way of working. I don't have a structured way of living. Because so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am guilty of quite often starting with a flurry and then just kind of running out of pace. And then yeah. I'm just pushing through. And I've, I've listened to a couple of people who've, who've said their advice was get your first draft finished. It doesn't matter what it's like because then you'll always go back. 
And I keep, I keep trying to hold on to that, but it's difficult because you, the enthusiasm you have at the start of a project, it's difficult to sustain that. It is, I think, when you're doing that, but you reignite it, I think, when you go back. Because if you've come up with your synopsis and your characters and then you're trying to write it, it does end up just feeling like you, you just, oh, I've got to make this happen. Now I've got to make this happen. Now I've got to make this happen. And I think you lose a bit of the magic, don't you? So, yeah, yeah definitely going back into it, I think, can really reignite your passion for the story. In terms of the podcast, we're on to the last question. And that is the, either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. And the book that you've chosen is a book by Catherine Gray, and it's called Sunshine Warm Sober. I'm only a little bit of the way in, but it's just, what a writer. So Catherine Gray has also written The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, which I've got, and I stupidly haven't read it yet. I've just got so many books. And she sent me a copy of this. Um, I think it came, yeah, it came out just last month. And her voice is just fantastic. She's so funny. She's so witty. It's just a joy to read. Catherine Gray, from what I understand, and the first time I saw her, I think she was being interviewed on Breakfast TV. And I just really warmed to her when I was watching her. And she experienced real problems with, with alcohol. And I think, she's, I think she's seven or eight years sober now. And this is about sunshine, warm, sober. You know, we talk about being stone cold sober. And as she says very early in the book, that's not very endearing, is it? You kind of think that's not a nice place to be stone cold sober. Why would I want to live a stone cold sober life? It's just not appealing. So she's come up with this sunshine, warm, sober. And I'm just at at a point in it now where she reminisces a, a holiday where she was with some friends and while she was still actively drinking and the sort of she talks about fear and the anxieties and the things that got in the way of her enjoying what was around her in you know beautiful seas and the reef and you know all of these things and then I'm just about to read her experience of a sober holiday where I, I imagine that she's she's going to tell us about being able to take everything in and, and, and enjoy it and I just think it's a really interesting look at what it is really like to be sober and the joy that you can find in life. And how actually, I think, you know, when you think back to Bethany Clint's book as well, Last One at the Party, I think with booze, because we're such a nation of drinkers, it's become something we feel we have to have and do. And, you know, to to enjoy life, it's just it's just such a habit that we're all into. And I think, you know, like if we strip that away, I just think you start you, you'll start to notice more and enjoy life more without trying to kind of artificially enhance what's going on. So I think it's really interesting. So, yeah, that's what I'm reading. And she's written I think she's written four or five different books. Unexpected joy of being single, being another. And I, I just think her, vo- her writing voice is just absolutely, it's right up my street. So I highly recommend this, even though I've just started it. Because <laughs> one of the things that always fascinates me about that, and again, as you say, it's the kind of sequel to the, the first book, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. And as you, you just touched on there, that obviously a lot of us, as you get to teenage years, and then alcohol becomes part of growing up. I've seen it with my own children as well. And it's almost like it's not a choice. And anybody who would 
try and fight against that. It's quite difficult. There's a lot of peer pressure. And then it's one of those things that the addiction, you wouldn't know until you actually started drinking, whether or not it's something that might affect you adversely. And as you say, such as culturally, you know, going to the pub and drinking seems to be so integral to everything that people do that it must be quite difficult just to kind of take a step back from that. Yeah, and I think I think what's really interesting is how we... So I I still drink. I don't drink loads. I just I like a beer. And my husband doesn't drink. And it's interesting how he sees it because he actually says if he's with a group of people that are out to get drunk, how boring. He says, you're all boring. Your jokes are shit. Like, it's just, you're not as funny as you think you are. So it's actually, the reason it's boring is not because there's nothing interesting to do. It's because the people who drink become less interesting than what the drink they drink, um, which I think says a lot. And I think that's a lot to mull over. And I know when, when he decided to stop drinking, we started doing much more interesting things. So instead of going to the pub, we got into basketball. We got into ice hockey, not playing, <laughs> watching. We'd go watch the basketball. We'd go watch the ice hockey. We were just doing so much more and, and enjoying life more. So, um, yeah, there's definitely something in the sober curious movement, I think. In fact, I did some research with Mind. I was working with Mind a few years ago and um, found that when I broke down the data into age groups, that it was the older age group. So it was like the parents of Gen Z. So Generation X and the baby boomers were more likely to turn to drink if they were not feeling good than the younger people who would pick a different coping mechanism. So that was interesting. Sadly, uh, Lucy, we are, we've almost come to the end of the podcast, um, which has been fantastic chatting to you about your, your favourite and, and not-so-favourite books. And, you know, I, I'd already mentioned to you just about your, your own writing. Have you, do you have a deadline? Is that a self-imposed deadline? Or are you just going to see when you get to the end of the novel and take it from there? So I work well with deadlines. So I always ask my agent for a deadline. <laughs> so I'm going to be submitting it to her the end of the month beginning of August um I kind of know really because she helps me to set them just because she knows I like them so I kind of know if I need an extra week or so that it'll be fine because she's she's away in August for a bit anyway but yeah that's what I'm aiming for to have the first draft done beginning of next month so we'll see brilliant we wish you wish you the best of luck with that but as I say thanks very much for joining me on the podcast I've really enjoyed chatting to you about books it's been great it's been lovely thank you Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.